Thank you all so much for being with us today on Easter Sunday here at River Oaks. Welcome to all of you. Welcome to those of you joining us online. Let's borrow a tradition from the church for many years. I'll say the Lord is risen and you shout back, he is risen indeed, shall we? The Lord is risen. Praise the Lord, He is indeed, and thank you for being here with us to celebrate that. By the way, we just had the privilege of witnessing baptism. If you've never been baptized and you consider River Oaks your church home or would like it to be, let us know. We'd be happy to prepare, talk to you about baptism, and celebrate that with you as well. For those of you just joining us uh, as guests this morning, on the back of our bulletin, there's always an outline of the message, so if it helps you to follow that, I'll note that you can also access that online on our website, those of you, or through our church app uh, joining us online. And the Hey, I'm Here card, the little perforated strip, we always appreciate it when you all fill that out, drop it in the basket, sit at the door as you leave. Last thing I'll say is this, one of our foundational values as a church is devotion to praying, Uh, not just praying privately, for praying as well for one another. And we never want you to leave a service here at River Oaks feeling like you need someone to pray for you. It is our greatest privilege to pray with you and for you. There are four tables at the back walls here. We call those our prayer tables. And after a service, we'll have people prepared to, to, to come pray for you at those places. So if you have a need for prayer, don't, don't leave here without letting somebody pray for you at one of the prayer tables. That would be our great privilege. Well, we celebrate today the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, which is absolutely essential and foundational to the Christian faith. So much so that the Apostle Paul would write to the Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. That is, it's futile, it's useless. But he went on to say, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Now, why is the resurrection of Jesus so absolutely foundational that Paul could say, if it didn't literally really happen, if Jesus didn't really rise bodily from the dead, your, your faith is in vain? Well, I think the passage that Susanna just read for us holds some clues to that question. The first reason that it's so essential is this. The, res- res- the resurrection of Jesus confirms the truthfulness of his words. It's worth noting that Jesus' own followers, those who'd been with him for almost three years, were very slow to believe that he had actually risen from the dead. You may have caught this when Susanna read the passage that the women who came to the tomb and found it empty were perplexed. And so the angel said to them, he's not here but is risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise, and they remembered his words. Oh, yes, he did predict that. He did say that. They were slow to believe it. The women then went to tell the apostles. What did the apostles think about that? Well, as Susanna read, these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Later in the chapter, in verse 36 of Luke chapter 24, Jesus appears to the apostles where they were gathered in a room, and he's standing in the midst of them all of a sudden, and they were startled. They thought they were seeing some kind of apparition, a ghost, a spirit. He said, no, it's me. Touch me and see. A spirit does not have flesh and bones as I have. 
And then Jesus said, have you got anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it in their presence. Why did he do that? He wanted them to know that he really was a flesh and bone being, bodily risen from the grave. You may have read about this several months ago. I read it in a publication called The Week. Um, an unknown buyer paid $18,350 for an invisible sculpture by Italian artist Salvatore Garou, who described this, quote, sculpture as a density of thoughts, a density of thoughts. And then of all things, he named the sculpture, the sculpture, I am. That's interesting to me because that's the name God, the invisible God, chooses for himself in Scripture. Jesus ascribes to himself when he says, before Abraham was, I am, but Jesus, the risen Jesus, was no mere density of thoughts. He was a visible, bodily, resurrected Lord and Savior, just as he had said, and the resurrection confirms the authority of his words. Secondly, the resurrection of Jesus confirms the authority of the Scriptures. When Jesus appeared to his disciples and ate the piece of broiled fish, he said this to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. In other words, I, I did tell you I would be raised from the dead. I'd be crucified, then resurrected. We read that in the Gospels. But he applies it to the promises of the Old Testament. <clears throat> he says, Everything written about me about Jesus in the law of Moses, that's the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the law of Moses, the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the book of Psalms must be fulfilled. You mean Jesus is found in those books of the Bible? Yes. The gospel of Jesus is the unifying theme of the Bible, ties together the Old and the New Testaments, Jesus opened their minds to understand Scripture. They'd been with him three years, but there was a whole lot they did not know yet about Jesus, and they were yet to learn. The resurrection proved the authority of his words, the authority of Scripture, and then finally the resurrection confirms not only the authority of the Scriptures, but the deity of Jesus Christ. Jesus says something remarkable in verse 49 of Luke 24, before he leaves his disciples in that room, he says, behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. Now, what did he mean by that? Look at that phrase for a moment. I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. In that one verse is the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We're told in Acts chapter 1 that the promise the promise is the gift of the Holy Spirit. So in this one verse, Jesus is saying, I'm God the Son. I'll send the promise, God the Holy Spirit, coming from God the Father. Elsewhere, the Apostle Paul would write that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the Spirit of holiness, the Holy Spirit, through his resurrection from the dead. All three working together. The resurrection shows us that Jesus was not merely a good man, a good teacher, but literally God the Son, the Son of God. Only God can send God. So when Jesus says, I'm sending the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father, 
He's claiming his deity. Disciples had been with him three years, but there was a lot they didn't yet know about Jesus. When we really know who he is, we will never say he's just one of many ways to God. He was just a good teacher. He was perhaps a prophet. They were beginning to understand who he was. Years later, Peter, after having had a key role in the founding and establishing of the Christian churches, would write this in 2 Peter chapter 3. He'd write to all believers, grow, grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. We're to be growing to know him better and love him more. Let me ask you a question this morning. Is your view of Jesus big enough? Is it big enough? For the disciples, we'd have to say no. Their view was not yet big enough. Peter says we should be growing that. Later, the apostle Paul, writing of his own longing to know the Lord, would write to the Philippians, I long to know him and the power of his resurrection. Paul wasn't saying, I, I want to be saved. He was already saved. He was already a believer. He was a devoted believer. He was saying, I want to know him more. When Paul wrote about the knowledge of Christ, he said, what I'm preaching is of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Unsearchable meaning inexhaustible, unfathomable. We can't begin to grasp all there is to know of and in Jesus. And Paul says, I long to know him, to know him better. So I'll ask it again. Is your view of Jesus big enough? This morning as we celebrate his resurrection, I'd like to, to focus our, our view of Jesus on one particular book of the New Testament. It's not a book that's typically associated with Easter Sunday. It's the book of Hebrews. And the theme of the book of Hebrews, very simply, is the superiority of Jesus. The superiority of Jesus over angels, over Old Testament forms of worship, over priests, over even Moses himself. The superiority of Jesus that we might know the risen Christ even better. Who is Jesus? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us that he is Lord over everything. He's Lord over all. We read this in Hebrews chapter 1, the very beginning of the book. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, notice what, what the writer goes on to tell us about Jesus. He paints an incredible picture of the greatness of Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Have you ever considered that everything that exists was created by, for, through Jesus? The Gospel of John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. The Apostle Paul writes these words of Jesus in the book of Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things were created through him and before him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. 
in Jesus, everything in creation is holding together. Look at the same passage again, if you'll put that back on the screen from Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. Through whom also he created the world, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That's why Jesus could say to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. He is the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. What is upholding the universe? The answer is not so much what, but who. Jesus is upholding the universe by the word of his power. So I'll ask it again. Is your view of Jesus, the resurrected Lord Jesus, upholding the universe by the word of his power, is it big enough? Is it big enough? It's important that we have a right understanding of who Jesus is. <clears throat> if you do, you'll never say, well, he was just a good teacher. He was perhaps a prophet. He taught many good, wonderful things. He was a great religious leader. He was one of many ways to God. No. Jesus is unique. He's unlike any other human being. There's never been nor ever will be anyone like him. And we have to understand who he is to really, really appreciate what he's done. Because the next thing that we're told by the author of the book of Hebrews is so remarkable in light of who he is. And what he's done is this. He made purification for our sins. We go on to read in Hebrews chapter 1. We continue to read. He's the radiance of the glory of God the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So that's where Jesus is with God the Father now. He's made purification for sins, not his own because he had none, but ours. How did he do that? He did that by becoming like us. Kristen Holmgren writes about a, a dad, a young dad named Derek, who was watching his son with some other kids at a swimming pool one day. And uh, as Derek watched his little boy with the other little boys get into the water, he noticed that all the boys except his son took their T-shirt off when they got into the pool. And he knew why his son wouldn't take his shirt off. He had a great big birthmark, covered a lot of his chest and part of his stomach, and part of one of his arms. And the boy was very self-conscious about it. His dad did a most remarkable thing. At significant cost and some pain, I expect, he got a tattoo on his own body to approximately match the one, his son's, the shape of his son's birthmark. Why'd he do that? He loved his son. He cared for his son. When I read that, I was reminded of what Jesus did in Hebrews chapter 2, 14 and 15. The next verse, as you'll see on the screen, the Bible says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, that is Jesus, likewise partook of the same things. That's his incarnation, took a human flesh and blood body. Why? 
that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver those who fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, as wonderful as what that uh, young dad did for his son, Jesus said, did something quite differently. He didn't become like us just to make us feel better about who we were. He became like us in order to accomplish something for us, something that we could never do. He took our place. He bore our judgment to destroy the devil's hold over our lives and our eternal destiny. He, on the cross, became the great substitute. Jesus, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, the one through whom all things were created, the one who upholds the universe by the power of his word, the one through whom all things hold together, on the cross he became the sacrificial lamb slain for our sins. He became the great substitute. Author John Stott, in his classic book, The Cross of Christ, writes these words. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. Ever since the Garden of Eden, it has been that way. Wanting to have ourselves on the throne of our lives rather than God. The essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for for man, the risen Jesus, who he is, what he did. And then Hebrews gives us some detail about what he's doing now. Have you ever thought about that now that Jesus has been raised from the dead? Is he just sitting at the right hand of the Father? Is he actively doing something? Yes, he's actively doing quite a lot. For one, he represents us in heaven as our great high priest and intercessor. Note these words in Hebrews chapter 4. The writer says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us who wrote the book of Hebrews, but whoever wrote it to these Jewish Christians knew that they knew well all about Jewish worship and how the high priest was the one who would go into the holiest place of all once a year to make atonement for his own sins and the sins of the people. But Jesus is now our great high priest. And the remarkable thing is that he can sympathize with us because he, in every respect, has actually been tempted like we are, yet without sin. So we're called to come confidently to the throne of grace. I think those words, the throne of grace, are some of my favorite words in the whole Bible. The reason is this. When we think about God's throne, we often think of it as a throne of judgment. And rightly so. God's throne is a throne of judgment. But for those who are in Christ, who've embraced Jesus, whose sins are covered by his blood, who are joined to him by the Holy Spirit, the throne of God is not something to fear. The throne of God is for us the throne of grace because God the Son, our great high priest, is there to represent us. And so we're to come confidently. And I think to, to a significant degree, this verse refers to our prayer lives. We're to come with confidence before God's throne to obtain what we need, mercy and grace at time of need. 
Jesus is there to represent us when we pray. And it would seem also from the next verse in Hebrews that Jesus also prays for us himself. Note these words in Hebrews 7 in verse 25. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That is, Jesus is living now before the throne of the Father to make intercession for you. I don't know fully what that means, but it seems to imply in part that Jesus is interceding for the fullness of God's will to come about in our lives. I think we can relate it to the, the, the next point. That is, regarding what he's doing now, he's working to perfect our faith. Hebrews chapter 12 reads this way. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Now, Jesus is the founder, that is, he's the originator of our faith. But we're told here he's also the perfecter. He's the one who brings it to fullness, to a complete uh, and full purpose. Jesus' desire for us is that our faith be perfected, brought to maturity. So look to him. Consider him now resurrected alive at the right hand of God. He's there for us, our great high priest, our great intercessor, the great perfecter of our faith. He works in us and for us to perfect our faith. And then finally, the author of Hebrews tell us, tells us something else he's doing now at the right hand of God, the resurrected Jesus. He's serving as our great shepherd. The writer writes, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may he equip you with everything good that you may do his will. That is, may he, Jesus, the risen Lord, the shepherd, be working in you now, equipping you with what you need to do his will, working in us what's pleasing in his sight. Jesus, when he was on earth, said, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And now we're told the resurrected Lord is the great shepherd of the sheep, the shepherd and bishop of our souls. What do you think of when you think of what a shepherd does? I think of things like care, guidance. Sheep need guidance, feeding, nurture, protection. Sheep need to be protected, safekeeping, provision. Jesus also equips us. That is, he provides for us what we need to do his will. But perhaps the most meaningful thing about Jesus' role as great shepherd, I think, comes into play when we face the doorway of death. For ourselves, certainly, but perhaps even for others. Over the years, when I've been part of uh, helping families plan a memorial service for a loved one who has died, we, we, we always ask them any particular scriptures they want read. 
almost without fail, one of the passages they choose is Psalm 23. I can remember when my dad was dying with cancer, he was memorizing the 23rd Psalm. He'd have his Bible open, I'd say, what are you reading, Dad? He said, I'm trying to memorize the 23rd Psalm. Why is the 23rd Psalm so meaningful? Well, it's beautiful for one, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But I think one line in particular makes it so relevant and meaningful for people when they face death. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. For those who know Jesus, there is the great shepherd of the sheep who not only guides us in life with care and provision and protection, equips us to do his will, but when we come to the doorway of death, I think his role is more significant than any other. That is when he takes us by the hand and leads us through that doorway. So that for those who are in Christ, death is really a new beginning. It's a doorway into eternity with our Lord and Savior because of Jesus and what he's done. Dr. J. Kim, a professor at Gordon-Conwell, wrote recently in a Lent devotional um, about a book called When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air is the memoir of um, Paul Kalanithi. Paul Kalanithi was just finishing his medical residency in neurosurgery at Stanford when he was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And in his memoir about his experience at this stage of his life, he quotes his oncologist and his friend, Dr. Emma Hayward, who said of his impending death, this is not the end or even the beginning of the end. This is just the end of the beginning. For Christians, I think this is true. Death is a doorway. It's a doorway into eternal life. Even though I'll walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for you're with me. The great shepherd of the sheep, the one who has been raised from the dead, the one because of whom we have eternal life and can say, oh death, where's your sting? Oh death, where's your victory? The great shepherd of the sheep has gone to prepare a place for us. Some of you may be familiar with something called the Heidelberg uh, Catechism. The Heidelberg Catechism was published in 1563, and a, a catechism is something that's designed for teaching. And <clears throat> this in particular is in a question-answer format, and you'll see the first point, the Heidelberg Catechism, on the screens. I think it's also the best known point in the catechism because it's so comforting and so rich in the truth that it presents. And it begins with the question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And I'll read the answer and I'll invite those of you who believe this and who know this and would like to, to read this answer with me aloud. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. 
He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. This is the main thing, to know that you really do belong to him, that you can really call him, as Thomas did, my Lord and my God. And please don't wait until you're facing death to make that decision. Make it now. <clears throat> I'll ask you again this morning. Is your view of Jesus big enough? The Bible tells us that he is the one through whom all things were made. That he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That he is the one who has made purification for our sins. That he represents us before the throne of grace as our great high priest, as our intercessor, as the great shepherd of the sheep, the one who says to his followers, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, the one who's working to perfect our faith. And we are called to grow in grace and in our knowledge of him. As we prepare to close then, I'd like to raise three questions by way of personal application. Number one, <clears throat> do I know Jesus merely as a person in history, a mere historical figure? I think the greatest danger in America, the greatest deception in the religious world is possibly nominal Christianity. That is, thinking we are truly Christians because we believe Jesus existed. We believe he was a real historical person. We may even believe he really died on a cross and raised from the dead. But as James would write in the book of James, you say that you believe in God. Good. Even the demons believe that. Satan knows Jesus is the Son of God. Satan knows he died on a cross and was even raised from the dead. Having an, an intellectual agreement to these things is not enough. The Bible calls us into a saving relationship whereby we acknowledge our sin and our need and humble ourselves and put our faith in Him alone for our salvation. Do I know Him as merely a historical figure or do I know Him as the provider of my salvation? This is critically important. It's the most important thing. It's the starting place. But it is the starting place and not the finish line. Salvation is an entrance. It's a doorway into a lifetime of spiritual growth and discipleship. That's why Peter, one of the early disciples who'd been with him three years, but yet didn't know a whole lot about him yet, would tell us years later, grow in the knowledge of him. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of him. Let your view become bigger and bigger and bigger throughout life. Then do I know him, not only as my savior, but my intercessor, my shepherd, the one who is alive today, who stands before the throne of grace, who represents me there, the one who is 
the great shepherd of the sheep and the shepherd and bishop of my soul who's helping my faith to be perfected in helping me to grow, to know him better and love him more. Is your view of Jesus big enough? Grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. Would you join me as we pray? Father, pray for every person here by the power of the Holy Spirit to have a bigger vision of who our Lord Jesus is. Father, by your Spirit, help us to grow in grace and in our knowledge of him. Now, perhaps you're here today and you do have some knowledge. Maybe you've even been coming to church for a little while. You've heard these things, but you are not certain whether you have actually yielded your life to him as Savior and Lord, and you'd like to be sure. If you are uncertain and you are truly willing to follow him as Lord, not merely to acknowledge his existence, but to follow him as Lord, I would invite you to join me in a simple prayer using these words right where you are. Dear God, I do believe that Jesus died on the cross and was raised from the dead, that he made provision for my sin. And Lord, I am a sinner and I need your forgiveness. I turn from my sin and I turn to you. Forgive me. Save me. Be the Lord of my life. Make me your follower from this day forward. And now I'll invite all of you to join me who would like with a great creed that goes back to the early days of the Christian church. When we proclaim this aloud, we are joining Christians from all parts of the world down through the centuries. I'll invite you to say it with me if it expresses what you believe, the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, on the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.